Mark chapter 13, beginning in verse 1. And he came out of the temple. As he came out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. And Jesus said to him, Do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And as he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter and James and John and Andrew asked him privately, Tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? And Jesus began to say to them, See that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name saying, I am he, and they will lead many astray. And when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. These are but the beginning of birth pains. But be on your guard, for they will deliver you over to councils, and you will be beaten in synagogues, and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them. And the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. And when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, do not be anxious beforehand what you are to say, but say whatever is given you in that hour, for it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. And brother will deliver over to death brother and the father, his child, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. But when you see the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not be, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down, nor enter his house to take anything out. And let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas, for women who are pregnant and those who are nursing infants in those days, pray that it may not happen in winter. For in those days there will be such tribulation as has not been from the beginning of the creation that God created until now and never will be. And if the Lord had not cut short the days, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he shortened the days. And if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or look, there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect. But be on guard. I have told you all things beforehand. But in those days after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. And the stars will be falling from heaven and the powers and the heavens will be shaken. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. And then he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. From the fig tree, learn its lesson. As soon as its branches become tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also when you see these things taking place, you know that he is near at the very gates. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. But concerning that day or that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven nor the Son, but only the Father. Be on guard, keep awake, for you do not know when the time will come. It is like a man going on a journey when he leaves home and puts his servants in charge, each with his work, and commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know when the master of the house will come, in the evening or at midnight or when the rooster crows or in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. And what I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we read these words and we long for your return. Lord, we long for you to come again and bring renewal and restoration to your creation, Lord, to save your beloved. Lord, we long for your return and we long that today you would teach us to live in light of the fact that you are coming again in power and great glory. Lord, teach us not only to long for it, but to live in light of that. Teach us today by your spirit in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, what we believe about the future, what we believe will, will come in the future, will impact the way you live today. What you believe will come will impact the way you live today. In 2017, the Houston Astros defeated the Los Angeles Dodgers. 
in the World Series. I know I hear my, my boys in blue out there already booing. Just wait. I'm getting there. Two years later, it was discovered that the Houston Astros had cheated. <laughs> what? See, they had uh, video technology behind the center field wall zoomed in on the catcher's signs, the opposing team's catchers. They read the catcher's signs, and then they relayed the pitch that was going to be thrown by banging on a trash can in the dugout to let the batter know what was coming. And because the batter knew what pitch was coming, they knew what to do. Now, while I do think the Astros need to surrender their World Series title, that is not the reason I bring this up. My point is that our knowledge of the future impacts the way we live today. If you know what pitch is coming, you know whether to take that pitch as a ball or a strike, whatever it is, you know what to do. And that's what makes our text today so important. Jesus tells his disciples what they can expect in the future. But his purpose is not so that we would focus on end time events. See, we can't get carried away in Mark chapter 13 and try to build a timeline of what comes first and what comes next so that we can argue about it. So often that's what happens. We read Mark 13 and we take everything that we know from every other place in Scripture and we try to build a timeline so that we can can argue about what's coming now and what's coming later and what's already happened and what's yet to come. Jesus' point is not to give us a, a prediction or a timeline of end time events, but his intention is to prepare his disciples to have end time ethics. This is all about how we should live as the last days are approaching. And so the question that we need to ask ourselves today is in light of what is happening in the world and what we know to come in the future, how do I live my life now? How do I live my life today, tomorrow? How do I conduct myself in my relationships? How do I live? See, this conversation in our text is initiated by a comment made by one of the disciples. He's looking at the temple complex and he says, Jesus, look how wonderful it all is. And Jesus, just all doom and gloom, he's like, oh yeah, you like these buildings? Not one stone will be left upon another. It's all going to be thrown down. This is like so shocking. This is like the center of religious life and like Israel's national pride and what it means to be a Jewish person. It's like the temple. And Jesus is like, it's all going to be destroyed. And so it prompts two more questions. Jesus, when is this going to happen? Question number one. And what will be the sign that it's about to happen? Question number two. And Jesus' answer is incredibly important because he almost completely ignores the first question. He talks very little about when it's going to happen and spends all of his time talking about the signs. And so we would do well to concern ourselves with the same. But there is one matter of timing that is important because check this out. When Jesus was speaking, all of these events were in the future. All of these events that Jesus is talking about are in the future of when he's speaking. They're in the future of when Mark was writing. All of these events, as we read them, from when he, the time he spoke, they were all in the future. But now we're some 2,000 years later. And so the question that we can ask And the question, the the belief of some is that some of these things are in our past. And so how do we respond to that? If that's the case, if these events are in Jesus' future but our past, then it changes the way we apply Jesus' teaching here. Now, there's a variety of different ways that people have understood Mark chapter 13. Some understand... All of this text in its entirety 
to have been fulfilled in the first century. That is one view of this text. They point to the apostles' experience of incredible suffering. They point to uh, their encounter of false teachings. And ultimately, that's the generation that witnesses the destruction of the temple. That's what brings on this whole teaching. And so some will say that all of it is in the past. Others will read this and acknowledge that it may look like Jesus is talking about things that were fulfilled in the first century. But since he refers to his own return, that's the Son of Man coming in the clouds with power and great glory, since he's referring to his return, that can't possibly have been fulfilled. And so we're still waiting for all of it, excuse me, I'm hitting my microphone, all of it to be completed in the future. A third view would say that some of these things are in the past, and they believe that some of it we are still waiting to be fulfilled. It certainly would honor the place of the temple's destruction in the passage and also Christ's return to say, no, some of it has happened, but we are still waiting for more of it to happen. But then how do we understand the other content? Everything else in here, is is it past or is it future? It's vague. It's, It's confusing. It's not very clear. And specifically, what about this thing that Jesus calls the abomination of desolation? What is that? And where do we place that in time? Honestly, I'm not convinced that any of these three ways are completely satisfactory. When it comes to biblical prophecy, sometimes we experience one prophecy being fulfilled twice. One prophecy fulfilled in two generations. A classic example of this is Isaiah chapter 7. In Isaiah chapter 7, King Ahaz is being threatened by the kings of Israel and the kings of Syria. And they are coming to wage war against Judah. And so Isaiah comes to King Ahaz and says, ask for a sign. And Ahaz goes, I'm not going to weary God. I'm not going to ask God for a sign. And Isaiah says, therefore, a sign is going to be given to you. The woman, the young woman or the virgin shall conceive a child and give birth to a son and you shall call his name Emmanuel. And then you turn the page to Isaiah chapter eight and Isaiah's wife, a young woman, conceives, gives birth to a son, and before too long, those two kings that Ahaz was afraid of turn back and are no longer a threat. In Isaiah's day, the prophecy that Isaiah gave experienced a type of fulfillment. But we know when we come to the New Testament That the ultimate sign of God's salvation was not the child that was born to Isaiah, but the child that was born to Joseph's wife, the Virgin Mary. The Virgin conceived and gave birth to a son, and he is God with us, Emmanuel. So one generation experiences salvation that was brought to a king and to a nation And one generation experienced salvation brought to the whole world. That Jesus is coming, brings salvation to the whole world. Now, I think the best explanation of our text today is to say that Mark 13 describes two events that happen to two generations with two different magnitudes. The generation of the Jewish people living in A.D. 70 experienced a great tribulation that resulted in a world-changing, a world-ending event. See, Rome invaded Jerusalem, and it's estimated that more than one million people were killed when Rome invaded, and then ultimately it resulted in the destruction of the temple. Now, if you're a Jewish person in the first century, that is the end of your world, your religious life as you know it. The temple is gone. It's no more. The sacrificial system with it wiped away. How do you commune with God? This was a world-ending event for those people in that culture at that time. But a future generation 
will experience a greater tribulation. A tribulation that has cosmic implications at cosmic proportions, resulting in the return of Christ, the judgment of the world, and the salvation of those who believe. So in this, the destruction of the temple in the first century by Rome is a microcosm. It is a a small-scale example of what will one day encompass the entire planet. It's a microcosm of the apocalypse. So these things that Jesus is talking about, there's, we don't need to be worried about why we can see some of these things looking like they happened in the past. It doesn't mean that they are not also happening in the future. There is still so much that Jesus talks about that has not taken place, that will take place, that we can be certain of will happen. And this means that it applies directly to us today as people who are living between the two ends, between the destruction that took place in the first century and the destruction that will come at the end of the age. Mark 13 applies to every generation. And every generation of believers has been taught to expect the return of Jesus at any moment. That he can come back at any moment. And so our text tells us how to live in light of current suffering, current world events, and future apocalyptic events. It teaches us how to live today. This is incredibly important for us as a church. Not just so that we can see the signs when they're happening, but so that we can know how to live right now. And first, the way this passage teaches us to live today is that we live in preparation. Multiple times throughout the passage, Jesus says to be on guard. Do not be led astray. Stay awake. He says we're going to experience difficulty. We need to be prepared and not caught off guard when trials come. Trials that have always existed and will always exist, but will ramp up as we see the time growing near. We will experience difficulty, and specifically, he gives four contexts for trials that we will face. The first are spiritual trials. These are false messiahs and false teachers creeping into the church, trying to lead people astray. There are people in this world who care nothing for you, care nothing for theology, care nothing for the Bible, and are trying to gain a following for themselves, trying to amass people who will follow them, who will support them, who will give money to them to exalt their ministry, to exalt their leadership, and will lead people astray. Some of this that we experience in the world today is through prosperity preaching, That all Jesus wants is for you to be healthy, wealthy, and wise. And if anything bad happens to you, it's because you just really don't believe. Jesus says otherwise. The whole world will hate you on account of me. Another way that people will do this today to try to lead people astray is through something called deconstructionism. It's essentially believing the lie of the enemy in the garden, saying, did God really say this? Is God's word really true? Is God's word really active and and, and relevant for today? Does God really want you to believe these things? And calling into question the authority of Scripture. It's not wrong to ask questions about the things that you've been taught. Jesus encourages it. He says, you have heard that it was said of old, thou shalt not murder, but I say to you that anyone who hates his brother in his heart has committed murder against him already. Jesus is calling into question the things there, not saying that it's wrong, but saying that there is a greater truth behind it. And so deconstructionism is the attempt to get you to question not just what you've been taught, but to question God and to turn away from him. Another way false teachings creep into the world and creep into the church is through the idea of universalism. 
that Jesus died on the cross for everyone, so don't really worry about it. Everyone's going to be saved. Let's be happy-go-lucky, eat, drink, and be merry, and not worry about living in light of these truths. These are false teachings creeping into the world that we experience today. Spiritual trials. The second context of trials that he gives is political trials. We see this as well. Nation rising against nation. Wars and rumors of wars. I was talking to someone not too long ago who were like, it's just crazy though. The world has changed. It's not like, it's not like nations are invading other nations anymore. <laughs> what? <laughs> Russia? Ukraine? It's happening. It always has happened. It always will happen. Wars and rumors of wars. Today is no different. There's nothing new under the sun. We can't be afraid though. Because Jesus has told us ahead of time. He is sovereign over it. Political trials. A third context of trials are natural trials, natural disasters, earthquakes, famines. These are examples of the way creation itself is spiraling into chaos. We can add to it fires, California, floods, and global pandemics. These are things that will happen as the world is falling prey to the presence of sin and corruption and spiraling into chaos. We shouldn't be surprised by these things. And then finally, he says physical violence. Because of the name of Jesus, God's people will suffer violence. We've been spared from this somewhat living in the West, but we've been lulled to sleep while our brothers and sisters in Christ across the world in places like Africa and China and the Middle East are being murdered just for being Christians. This happens. It wasn't just the 12 apostles. This happens in the world. And we should grieve these things these spiritual and national and natural and, and physical trials, we should grieve these things, but we can't be caught off guard by them. We must be prepared, not with bug out bags and water and rations, although those are good things to have, but we need to be prepared so that we can be a non-anxious people in a world given to panic. The world is in panic mode. And as the church, we have the opportunity to see these things in the future. We've been told these things will happen. And Jesus says, don't be alarmed. These things must happen. Don't be alarmed. This must take place. But the end is not yet. Have you read that before? I'll be honest with you, I don't know that I've heard it that way in my life yet. These things must happen. Wars, rumors of wars, famines, uh, uh, earthquakes, tribulation, suffering, all of these things must happen. But the end is not yet. Jesus says that these things are not the end. These are but the beginning of of birth pains. Now, as a man, I know that I have no right to talk about childbirth as though I have any idea of what it's like. But I know one thing about birth pains because when my wife was giving birth to our three children, I was entrusted with the stopwatch. God bless her. My job was significantly easier. To time the birth pains. Now, Jesus isn't downplaying birth pains. He's not saying that, you know, when these things happen, quit your whining. It's just birth pains. Every woman that's given birth to a child stands up, walks out on Jesus. You, you have no idea what you're talking about, Jesus. No, he's saying like birth pains, these things happen and they increase in frequency and severity. These things that we experience, these trials that we experience, we're not caught off guard by the presence of them, and we shouldn't be caught off guard when we see them happening more often. 
Now, sometimes I think that we experience them more often because communication and technology allows us to be aware of everything going on in the world. And realistically, before the internet, everyone was only really aware of what was going on in their own immediate community and maybe in their extended family through telegrams and letters and things like that. And so now we're just aware of everything that's going on. And it feels like it's increasing in severity and frequency. That may be the case but we're certainly more aware of it than we ever were before. We're aware of all of these things that are happening. And so Jesus is not minimizing our experience. In fact, he's saying that like birth pains, we can expect them to increase in frequency and in severity. But even these spiritual, national, natural, and physical trials, even as they ramp up, they are not the end. But there is an event that will occur, that will be the sign that it is coming soon. And so Jesus tells us that we must be prepared for what he calls the abomination of desolation. I don't know if there's ever a cooler heavy metal band name than that, but this is the the abomination of desolation. This is, what is this? Well, This is another example. I don't mean to make light of this. This is a terrible situation. Um, The abomination of desolation is another example of one prophecy with two fulfillments. Okay? Jesus is reflecting on the prophecy from Daniel 9.27. And on the wing of abominations shall come one who makes desolate until the decreed end is poured out on the desolator. What in the world? The one who comes on the wings of abominations and makes desolate is widely understood and believed to have been a man named Antiochus IV Epiphanes. Antiochus IV Epiphanes was the ruler of the Seleucid Empire in between the end of the Old Testament and the beginning of the New Testament. When the Jews returned from exile and rebuilt the temple, Antiochus IV Epiphanes, Epiphanes means God manifest, he believed himself to be the manifestation of God, entered the temple in Jerusalem and set up an altar to Zeus in the Jewish temple and sacrificed pigs on it. If you know anything about the Jewish law or or food laws or the sacrificial system, this is an incredible abomination that took place in the temple. And so Jesus references this prophecy. The story of Hanukkah is the story of the Jewish people overthrowing Antiochus capturing the temple, cleansing the temple, and rededicating it. That's the story of Hanukkah. It's, it's defeating this, this little like band of, of Jewish guerrilla warriors overthrowing an emperor miraculously and rededicating the temple. And so Jesus references this prophecy that was widely understood to have been fulfilled and says that it's going to happen again. It's going to happen again. And when it does, when that happens, the end is near. Now, many people have tried to pinpoint some event in the first century that could possibly be interpreted as this abomination. As I said, there are people who believe that all of this was fulfilled in the first century. And so many people try to look for ways that it has been fulfilled. Some say that it occurred when Rome invaded Jerusalem with images of pagan gods on their banners. Some will say that it occurred when the Romans destroyed the temple, that the destruction of the temple itself was the abomination of desolation. And still others say that the abomination was when Jewish zealots hijacked the temple, overthrew the high priest, and set up their own priest. This is something that happened in the first century. And in any of these cases, though we can point back and say, maybe, maybe that was something that happened, we still see them as foreshadowing a future fulfillment because Jesus says that the generation that experiences will not pass away until the end comes. And so we might be able to point to things in the first century, but then we're still waiting for Jesus. Jesus. 
So we have to be waiting for a fuller fulfillment in the future. And so we can see that Jesus' words might apply then, but we are still waiting for them to happen again on a global scale. This is why some people believe that the temple in Jerusalem must be rebuilt. If the abomination of desolation is referring to Antiochus IV Epiphanes, who set himself up and and, and desecrated the temple, then people will say the temple must be rebuilt if it's going to happen again. And that might be the case. But also there are people who believe that the temple does not need to be rebuilt because the New Testament talks about the church being the temple of the Holy Spirit, being God's temple through the, the presence of the Holy Spirit. And so how much more terrifying would it be if the abomination of desolation was someone setting themselves up as God in the church? Whatever you believe, whatever side of this you fall on, you have to understand that both are acceptable beliefs of Christians. We, we don't fight about these things. We can, we can have some spirited debates, but our salvation is not contingent upon, upon what we believe about temple or not a temple or what constitutes as this fulfillment, what constitutes as that fulfillment. The only thing that we must hold with a closed fist, a closed grip when it comes to eschatology is that Jesus is coming back. Jesus is coming back. And the first time he came, it was cryptic. People didn't, they didn't know. And Paul says the reason it was cryptic is because if the enemy had known, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. It was, it was, it was cryptic to confuse the enemy. And it's still cryptic. And so when it all happens, we'll all look back together. No matter what we believe right now, we'll all look back together and we'll go, oh my goodness, God's a genius. That's amazing. And so his instructions to us in this, again, it's not timeline. It's not so that we can know literally exactly what's going to happen. His instructions to us is to stay awake, to be alert, to be on guard. And so we don't just prepare as though we are passive participants in salvation history. We don't just wait to receive suffering when it comes. We must be active. We must live with urgency. Not only are we to be prepared, but we live with urgency because we are nearer. Our generation, those alive today, are nearer the end today than any generation that has ever come before. And so time is short and the work is great. And so we must live boldly. There is no time to waste. There is no time to waste. We don't just passively receive what comes our way. We go out and boldly live for Jesus. Sometimes the fear of the future can be paralyzing. We're so afraid of this truth that we will suffer for the name of Jesus that we don't go out and proclaim the name of Jesus. And so it paralyzes us. Sometimes the fear of suffering for our faith can neutralize us. Because the gospel is so scorned by culture around us, we convince ourselves that it's really not that important. It's really not that important that I share with this person or that I, I, I let this person know that I'm a Christian. It's really not that important or it's really not that important at all. Not just not to share, but maybe, maybe because of fear of the way the world is going to look at you. Oh, my, this faith that is mine, it's just a private faith. I don't, I don't, need, to, I don't need to tell people. And it's this fear of the persecution that may come our way. But what we need is more bold believers. Reality Carpinteria, are you ready to get bold for Jesus? Are you ready to be bold? Are you ready to step out in faith and pray and ask God when you see persecution coming as the apostles did in the book of Acts? They didn't pray, God, make it stop. Make the persecution stop. Make the suffering stop. They said, Lord, give us boldness. Give us boldness to preach the gospel as we ought. 
Give us boldness to share the good news of Jesus. Give us boldness. May we not cower in the face of those who are your enemies, but may we proclaim your excellencies. May we proclaim your mercies with boldness as you stretch out your hand and accomplish signs and wonders, as you stretch out your hand and you save the lost. Reality Carp, are you ready to be bold for Jesus? Are you being paralyzed or neutralized by fear of rejection or fear of suffering? Then pray and ask God to give you boldness because there is too much at stake. The time is too short. If none of this is true, If none of this is true, if Jesus is not true, if Jesus is not coming back for you, then you're wasting your time at church. If Christ is not returning, and this is the best the world has to offer, and the best that Christ has to offer, and if in this life we have hope only, then we are to be pitied above all people in all of creation. This is 1 Corinthians 15. If there is no return, if there is no resurrection of the dead, if there is no future, then go do something else on Sundays. But if Christ is alive, if he is coming again, if he has has come and called you into salvation, then he has called you into his mission. There are no passive bystanders. We are all missionaries in God's kingdom seeking to advance the gospel and call all men and women to salvation in the name of Jesus. If you would live boldly, then you must preach the gospel. In season and out of season, gospel proclamation is not the work of pastors or missionaries. Gospel proclamation is the work of Christians. All are called to deliver good news to a dying world. I heard an incredible story recently of a woman in our church who was talking to a friend of hers who's not a believer. And as they have seen the world spiraling into panic, spiraling into chaos, said, the only people in my life who are not freaking out right now are Christians. Should I go to church? Yes. Yes. But don't just, don't just attend. It's not just being in this place that goes, now I feel good. Now I'm at peace. It's coming into contact with the gospel of Jesus Christ, the gospel of our salvation and what he has done to give us a future and to give us a hope. Maybe you're here and you're thinking, I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid of the suffering. I'm not afraid of the persecution, but I'm not equipped either. I don't feel capable. Well, first, don't worry about what you are to say. For the words will be given you in that moment because it's not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. But also, there's opportunity to be equipped. Shameless plug, sign up for Heritage. (laughs) Laugh all you want, I'm dead serious. Sign up for Heritage. It's not just a theology class. It's a foundation for living a life of following Jesus, including learning what the gospel is and how to share it in any context, in any relationship. You can sign up today, Tuesday, 6 p.m. Sign up. Out at the book table, there's an iPad there. You click a button, you can fill in your information. It's really simple. Sign up for Heritage. I would love for you to be equipped in what is the gospel and how do I share it? In a previous ministry, we had a similar class and there was a woman who came to that class and after the first couple of weeks in hearing what the gospel is and and how easy it is to to share. She just started sharing it with her friends. And in in the course of that class, five of her friends met Jesus just because she started sharing it. I met a woman once who who came into church and, and, and heard the gospel and said, I've never had anything against Jesus. Nobody ever told me about him. Open your mouth. 
Put one foot in front of the other. Go to the people that you know and share about Jesus. There are so many people who are are looking for hope in the world, are looking for salvation, are longing for a connection with God. And the only way they can receive that is through an intimate relationship with Jesus. And who, how will they believe if nobody tells them? We must preach the gospel in season and out of season. The best way that we can live with urgency and put the gospel, the beauty of the gospel on display is by loving those people in our lives and telling them the truth about Jesus. And whatever comes, whatever may come, we also put the beauty of the gospel, the sufficiency of the gospel on display by suffering well. In all of the trials that come our way, we can't freak out, we can't be afraid, we can't be caught off guard. We know how it all ends and we know what awaits us in eternity. We can keep calm because Jesus is on the throne. These are the things that we know. These are the things that we can take to the bank. We're called to be prepared. We're called to live with urgency. We're called to endure suffering. But what we don't know is for how long we endure these things. Jesus gives us signs to look for. He uses the comparison of the fig tree that when it it extends its branches, when its branches become tender, you know that summer is near. And so he says that when you see these things, you know that the end is near. But he says nobody knows when. He says not the angels in heaven, not even the Son, but only the Father. And of all of the questions that can arise in this text, this might be one of the most confusing. How is it that Jesus, if he is the Son of God, if he is God in the flesh, how is it that Jesus does not know? And this can cause issues for people trying to grapple with Jesus' identity. But it doesn't have to be an issue. See, Jesus is God and human. Both of these natures in Christ are essential beliefs of the Christian faith, that he is God and human. The unlimited son of God in becoming human willingly received limitations. And most of these limitations we don't have an issue with. Jesus was hungry. That's a limitation. Jesus grew weary and was tired. That is a limitation. These are all limitations that Jesus willingly received in himself when he took on humanity. But for some reason, we seem to struggle and accept with the idea that Jesus had cognitive limitations, intellectual limitations, but this is all part of what it means to be human. See, Jesus had to live in every way just as we live, yet without sin. He had to live as we do in complete trust and submission to the Father. So the text does not say that Jesus still does not know. Just at this time, in his incarnation, he didn't know. And so his motivation is not, he's not, our motivation isn't looking at a clock and going, okay, I've got six more years left or I've got this much time left. Our motivation is the same as Jesus' motivation. That's our hope and trust in God. We live in the hope of Christ's return and the power of God. All that we endure, all that is asked of us as we attempt to live faithfully to God, the only way it's possible is if we believe that everything Jesus did was in faithfulness to us. If enduring suffering is what we're called to do, if proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom is what we're called to do, then our motivation is the same motivation that Jesus experienced when he endured suffering and when he proclaimed the gospel of the kingdom. Ours is in faithfulness to him, but his has been in faithfulness to us to seek and save the lost. He knew what he would endure before he ever left the throne. You know what you're going to endure before you leave your house. If you are carrying with you on your lips the gospel of Jesus Christ, 
you are going to endure scorn from some, and you'll experience the salvation of the lost in other situations. That's what Jesus experienced. He experienced scorn, and he experienced saving lost people. He knew the physical and emotional suffering that would be thrust upon him. He knew that he would stand trial, be beaten and mocked. He was prepared even to die on a cross. God so desired a future with you that he lived in such urgency to accomplish your eternal salvation and nothing stood in his way because he wanted you. And in our desire for him, we live in the same urgency, in the same faithfulness to him. Everything that we could possibly face in this world. Jesus experienced on your behalf and more. The kingdoms of this world rose up against the king of kings and they thought they defeated him. The enemy thought they defeated Jesus. On the cross, Jesus did experience the end of his world, so to speak. The end of his, his life, on earth, the end of his, his, the, 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 his ministry. But he experienced it on the cross so that we could face the end of ours. Lord willing, he will return in our lifetime. Praise God. Before the end of this sermon, please, God. And we can face that. We can face the end of our world because Jesus received the end of his. And on the third day, Jesus rose from the grave and ascended into heaven. And the book of Acts says that as the disciples stood there and watched him ascend into the clouds, that the angels appeared among them and said, why are you looking up in the sky? This Jesus will return in the same way that you see him go, that he will return in the clouds of heaven with power and great glory, that Jesus is coming again. And our text says that he will gather his people to himself. Jesus is alive. Jesus is coming again. And because of this hope, we can endure anything. Because of this hope, we do not need to be afraid. Because of this hope, we can live with urgency and proclaim the good news faithfully. Jesus is on his way. And for those who love him, his return is greatly anticipated. It's the hope of Christ's imminent return that empowers us to live in faithfulness each day. We live in hopeful anticipation, knowing that he is coming and that we'll see him face to face and be set free from the suffering that we encounter each day. One of the favorite things I get to do every week is, I've talked a little bit about it. I, I, I love jujitsu. Okay, I know it sounds random. But there is something in jiu-jitsu, a position in Brazilian jiu-jitsu called knee-on belly. It is exactly what it sounds like. It is your opponent's knee on your belly, right on your diaphragm. And it is incredibly difficult to breathe. And this last week, I had a 300-pound guy's knee on my belly. But I had a view of the clock. And I looked up. I said, I can do anything for eight seconds. Church, look at the clock. Christ is coming back. We can do anything in the meantime. We know he's returning. We keep our eyes on him. And we know that whatever we experience in this life, it is temporary, but it has eternal consequences. It has eternal consequences. And so for those of you who have not received Jesus in faith, his return will not be a celebration but he will be coming once and for all to put an end to sin and to put an end to all who are in allegiance to it. In his first coming, he put sin to death in his own body and by faith we're set free from it. But in his return, sin is put to death wherever it continues to reign. And apart from faith, we will not escape it. We have the opportunity in this life to believe now and it has eternal implications. But for those who believe Christ's presence is not only future. The reason that you can endure is by faith. Jesus is with us now. 
Jesus is with us today by the power of his Holy Spirit. It's not only our hope for future glory, but it's our hope for today. Even though he has not yet returned, he's with us. Because after he ascended into heaven, he sent the Holy Spirit to live with us, to empower us. And if you put your faith in Jesus, then the presence of God is already with you and already works to empower you for anything that will come your way to be faithful as Jesus has been faithful to you. The power of God, not only in the future, but now available to you through faith. Reality Carpinteria. This is the promise to us. It's not just a calling to live this way, to be prepared, to live with urgency, to prepare the gospel, to preach the gospel, but to live in hope, to live in joy, to live in expectation that Christ is returning. And so please stay awake. Don't be lulled to sleep by the comforts of this world. Don't be lulled to sleep just because you aren't personally experiencing some of these trials and tribulations that will come. Stay awake. Be prepared. Live with urgency. Preach the gospel. Christ is coming and there is work to be done. And we've not only been called to receive from him the work that he has done, but we have been given the honor to participate in that work with him. You all, each and every one of you, if you have believed the gospel, have been entrusted with work to do. This is an every member ministry. And so we leave this place armed with the gospel of peace by the power of the Holy Spirit to see Carpinteria, the coastlands, and the nations transformed because he is coming again. And when he does, we will see his power and his great glory like this world has never encountered. That is what we look forward to. That is our hope. That is our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Let's pray to him now. Jesus, we ask as the Apostle John taught us to pray in the book of Revelation, come quickly. Lord, come quickly. But as we endure these sufferings, as we endure these trials and temptations and tribulations, Lord, may we be faithful as you have been faithful to us. Empower us, Lord, to, to be prepared. Empower us to be bold. Empower us to live with urgency. And God, we pray that as your people live in this world and encounter these things with peace in our hearts and the gospel on our lips, God, we pray that you would save the lost. We pray that they would see it and see your goodness, see your truth. Lord, we pray that you would save our brothers and sisters that you would save our mothers and fathers, that you would save our friends and family. Lord, that you would save even those who are most brutal to us, most vicious to us because of our faith. God, would you save even them, Lord? Would you save kings and kingdoms and rulers and politicians, Lord? Would you save governors and presidents? God, would you save prime ministers? Would you save the, the, the leaders of countries in this world because you are king and not they? And would you keep our hope fixed upon you and what you have done and what you will do and not what they have done and not what they will do? Our power and our hope is in you and you alone, Jesus. We love you. Come quickly. In Jesus' name, amen.